Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. I see your questions sometimes in the comment sections, but I really don't copy-paste them into my queue anymore. So if you want to get me a question, definitely send it to me by that email address. All right. Um, Call-in show moved to Fridays. Critical Conversations is now on Friday nights, and we are going to put it at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time so that we can move it up one hour. We were doing it at 7 o'clock, but we're going to do it at 6, and we're going to do that so that um, the late night owl Europeans who are around can still have a chance to listen um, and participate and even if you wanted to call in. I have not set up an international call-in line because every country I need to set it up in, I thought I could do it easily as a one-off, you know, one and done, but I can't. The call-in service that I use in order to do this, and there are not a lot of them, (laughs) um, the the service that I use uh, requires that I would make a different number or, or have a different setup for every country, and I... I don't really want to do that. So we've got, um, anyway, so the call-in show is pretty open for Western Hemisphere to call in, I suppose. Um, but I'm sorry for my European viewers. But you can still catch the show live or catch it on rerun. Okay, so we did a really fun show this week, by the way, on religious arbitration and some of the nonsense connected up with that. Had some nice calls, had some good things we went over. So I hope you guys will check out my Critical Conversations show. And then, um, oh, this next week, by the way, this Friday coming up is going to be our Halloween episode because it's the night before Halloween. So we're expecting to have some fun with that, and I hope you'll be able to join us. This week's podcast is with Janice Selby, a Canadian counselor who specializes in religious trauma therapy. And she is quite an interesting woman, had a nice conversation with her, and you can check that out on my Sensibly Speaking podcast. And finally, um, we will not be having flash answers today because I am out of them. I think I have one in the queue right now. So if you have short, fast type answers, uh, questions that you have for me, if the ones that I can rattle off answers pretty quickly, I love them. I love flash answer questions, and I try to get at least three in as a usual uh, five big questions, three flash answers is how I've been doing my show for years. So um, send them in, please. All right. So with that, we have some pretty interesting questions this week. I'm actually excited to answer some of them. So let's get to it. Brenna Zoomer, I was wondering how people really feel while being audited. From what I've heard about the repetitive processes, it sounds kind of awful to me. So do people get bored, feel trapped, feel like they're going crazy? I've heard they can go into a trance state. So do you sort of quote-unquote, lose consciousness a lot? Do you feel like it basically turns you into a kind of robot or a slave mentally? Or is it possible to come out of hours of auditing with your real self still basically intact? I'm just curious about the psychological state it creates. Okay, Brenna, thank you for this. And um, yes, it definitely does. Auditing of almost any nature does induce trance states. That is a a part of the the thing, especially repetitive processes. So auditing, let me say, as I've uh, mentioned before, auditing is a a lot of different things. There's a lot of different kinds of auditing or auditing processes. You have objective auditing and subjective auditing. And objective auditing or objective processes 
are the kind where you are um, sort of keeping your eyes open, being aware of your environment, touching things, moving around, uh, locating things in space and time, and that sort of thing. Like it's very objective. It has to do with objects and and the and the and the physical world and your relationship to it. Whereas subjective auditing, you know, is asking you questions of a recall nature or having you relive past experiences and going back and going over and over them, like in Dianetics, or finding a chain of incidents that have, uh, you know, one incident closer to the present and then an earlier similar time and an earlier similar time back in these what are called chains of incidents, earlier similars, until you get to the bottom of the chain, the most early incident involved, and that's the basic on the chain. And the idea is that when you get to that and you go through the process of reliving it or recounting it or recalling it, then it blows the power of that uh, whole chain of incidents that were that were uh, relying on this basic incident holding them all in place, this early traumatic episode, whether it was early in this life or way back on the time track, uh, millions or billions of years ago, and you've been carrying it around and similar incidents like it for, you know, centuries and millennia. Um, the idea is you get down to that basic and you recount it and all the energy and trauma and stress connected with all of it is gone. You erase it and it's no longer there. Or you release it where it's not erased, but it's so far gone from you that it's never, you know, it's not going to come back anytime soon. So um, that's the basic explanation of what auditing is trying to do on a session by session, process by process basis. and. Um, uh, I wanted to say all that because I wanted to be clear on what Scientologists believe is the goal of auditing, what they're trying to accomplish, and why they believe that it was almost required that you go into a trance state and and that you're going to be, you know, going through various shades of unconscious states, uh, levels of awareness. You know, you're going to be falling asleep. You're going to be what's called in Scientology boil off is what they call it, where you're yawning and falling asleep. And it's all just, you know, and you're running through this session and you're trying to recall these incidents, but you can barely keep your eyes open. Um, sometimes people just pass all the way out. I have seen that happen. Uh, I have had that happen to me. So I've I've experienced both of these things from the auditor and and from the pre-clear side where I'm sitting there, you know, passed out in the chair. And sometimes and the auditors, depending on the kind of auditing they're doing, will treat boil off or dope off or this this unconsciousness that that sets in sometimes in different ways depending on which auditing they're they're doing. But regardless of whether they're going to pay attention to it or not, they've got to get the pre-clear through it. So if my, that's why sometimes it, uh, sessions can take hours and hours is because you got to go through all this nonsense with these, with these um, unconscious states. And the idea with this is I'm not going to sit here and try to explain in psychological terms exactly what's going on there, because I think there's a lot of different things going on there. You have a disassociation, you have uh, false memory syndrome being implanted right there as it's happening in the session. This person is creating or is having created for them by the auditor 
um, mostly indirectly, but still it happens. Um, totally imaginary incidents, things that never happen to the person, including all of the stuff about past lives. Now, you can believe whatever you want to about past lives, but I'm going to insist that there is no such thing as past lives when it comes to Scientology auditing, and that that is not a recall of past life incidents that is, has any degree of validity. There's no evidence that what they are doing has any factualness to it at all. Um, but Scientologists believe it, and it's a real testament to the power of belief how seriously Scientologists take it and how deeply they're willing to go in an auditing session in order to discharge these traumatic episodes in their past, okay? So this is why they will go along with it. And so you ask, do people feel, uh, do people get bored, feel trapped, feel like they're going crazy? All of the above and more. I have seen and heard of some of the wildest stories of what people get up to in an auditing session where pre-clears have uh, gone into a, a different personalities. They stood up on a desk, and I, I heard one session where the auditor was sitting there, and the guy stood up, got up on the table, and started making these motions like he was cutting the auditor with a sword. I mean, wow, right? Here's the guy, like, standing there, and you're like, okay, now I got to get you to sit back in the chair and get through this process, and here we go. And that's, you know, that's as wild as things can get. You have pre-clears who will get up and try to leave. They feel very uncomfortable. Sometimes, like, ridiculously so, the auditor will just ignore everything the guy's saying, shove him back in the chair, and force him to get through the process. And that is where, that's really the point where Scientology or Dianetics auditing is uh, becomes really abusive and traumatizing in itself. Um, that is something you would not see done in a psycho, you know, in any psychologist's office or psychiatrist's office. You shouldn't be sitting there um, trying to engage in, you know, CBT or talk therapy or Freudian analysis or any kind of therapy. And when you want it to stop, the person forces you bodily to continue. That is wrong. You know, there's a certain degree of discomfort anybody will feel in a therapeutic session where, you know, the, the counselor or therapist might need to encourage the person to, you know, look at some stuff that's a bit rough about their life. And certainly if they're still willing and the counselor's still willing, you want to do what you can. But this Scientology stuff takes that. It doesn't care what the preclear, the, the the patient is doing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much you beg, plead, borrow, cry, whatever. Um, you're stuck in that auditing session until that auditor says you're done. And that is not therapy at all. That's just trauma. That's just trauma-inducing nonsense. So, um, so yes, there all of those things that you asked about do happen and lots of other things. Because you're putting people into some pretty weird headspaces uh, through the course of doing this, especially, like I said, when you get into past lives and you start asking people about having blown up planets and uh, committed genocide and things like that. Very, very serious, uh, you know, criminal activity that somebody is, is even in a past life where everybody's dead, it's all gone, it's all in the past, yet here's this person thinking they're responsible for that stuff. And, that's, and they never did any such thing. They weren't even alive at the time, you know. So that itself is uh, is its own form of, of awful. 
So anyway, all of this together, I guess I'm just sort of uh, giving you all my, you know, sort of thoughts as they're coming here, because I, I'm recalling my auditing as I'm sitting here answering this question. I haven't been in an auditing session, I think, in, oh gosh, I guess it's been eight years now. And uh, don't miss it <laughs> at all. <laughs> nope. Very, very happy to uh, not be in that process. So there's a lot of different ways that different pre-clears will approach auditing. So this is why I'm sort of speaking in these general terms and not getting too specific or too anecdotal about individuals, you know, and what they go through, because it's such a broad range of experience. Some pre-clears go into an auditing session and they're just very matter of fact and they just do what they need to do and they answer the questions and they don't put a lot of thought or effort into it, and they just want to kind of get through it. Other pre-clears come in, and they are all about learning everything they can about themselves and their past, and they're very into the auditing, and they're very into figuring things out, and they want to go down every pathway possible. And such pre-clears, of course, are very time-consuming and very imaginative. So, um, so that And everything in between. You know, so uh, it is expected, by the way, that all of these kind of reactions will happen. It's actually would be a bit odd if somebody just came in, started getting auditing, bang, 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 just answered all the questions, racka, 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 never had any sort of trance-induced state, never had any kind of unconsciousness, boil off, slip off, anything like that. You would start wondering as the case supervisor over time, you know, if somebody was that we would they would call it running shallow. The guy runs very shallow. He doesn't go very deep. So that was the language or terminology used in, uh, in by the case supervisors in the uh, in evaluating preclears. You wanted them to go deep, but you didn't want them to go too deep. You know, you wanted to kind of get through the sessions and get to a good result, and you wanted the person interested and and willing to plow in. But you didn't want these guys who were so into it that they just couldn't wait to, you know, fall asleep in the chair and, and you know, they have these eight-hour sessions where most of the time the auditor's just sitting there looking at this guy, you know, uh, passed out. So, you know, so, so you get a lot of different range of experiences there. And at the end of the day, I think, given the fact that this is all sort of pseudoscientific amateur hour when it comes to actual therapy— you would expect that you would get this broad, varied multiplicity of experiences because while Hubbard goes on about how it's standard tech and it's the same processes for everybody, what those processes do to people is quite can be quite different from one person to the next. So anyway, I hope that uh, was informative for you. Kevin Zay. First off, I know you're a little bit more of a Star Wars fan versus Star Trek. That being said... Who is your favorite recurring Star Trek character? Mine would have to be any played by Madge Barrett. Secondly, with Halloween coming up, I'd like to know if you and Melissa get into it as far as costumes or decorations. I personally do not decorate or anything like that anymore, but as far as the supernatural side of the holiday goes, I'm absolutely infatuated with it. Like you, however, I set the bar very high when it comes to evidence regarding supernatural claims. In fact, my favorite expert when it comes to these subjects is Joe Nickel, with James Randi coming in at a very close second. I think I've read just about every book these two gentlemen have written so far. Thanks for the question, Kevin. 
Yeah, bummer about James Randi. He passed this last week. And uh, man, he was so influential for me. He was one of the first people that I saw a picture of in the skeptic community and heard the words of uh, right after Carl Sagan, actually, when I was doing my initial first uh, Google dives and searches into finding out what skepticism and critical thinking and and uh, all of that is about after, you know, right after coming out of Scientology. So I was really bummed to hear Mr. Randy is no longer with us. He was definitely one of the good ones. Uh, okay, so your question's here. So yeah, Star Wars, Star Trek, man. It's, you know, it's a tough one. I, I've, I, depending on the day of the week, really, will depend on the answer for me as to what, which one I like more, honestly. I've, I've, I think I've said both in the past, and I've been a little, uh, you know, inconsistent on that. But for Star Trek, my favorite recurring Star Trek character, now I'm going to assume that we're talking about not the main characters, because if we did go with the main Star Trek characters, then my favorite would be Captain Kirk. That's just my guy, and that's just what was imprinted on me <laughs> as what Star Trek is at a very young age. And, the and of course, the, the triumvirate, right, the trinity of uh, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. But as far as uh, coming back characters, it's actually not original series uh, recurring character because, you know, Harvey Mudd and all those guys, I— or Harry Mud, I you know those the recurring characters from the original series were not super interesting to me. But in Next Generation, they started off pretty strong with a character that I thought had a ton of potential. They could have done so much highbrow, amazing work with Q, and I thought they really spoiled that. I thought they really lost uh, amazing opportunities there. Uh, with that character, because uh, I thought there, I, you know, here's this infinitely powered being with a playful and sort of, you know, let's let's have fun kind of uh, trickster sort of spirit, and who has a fascinating moral code that is way beyond anything humanity would have or experience because this is a cue from the cue continuum, right? So anyway, I just thought there was a lot of lost potential there, but he's still my favorite recurring character. Even when they stripped him of his powers and they had to learn some humility and all of that, I thought, okay, cool, that's that's all fine. But um, I thought there, I thought they could have done a lot more with it, but I still enjoyed that character. So, okay, so that's enough about me gushing about that. Uh, as far as Halloween goes, you and I are on the exact same page. I love Halloween. I love the supernatural. I love the possibilities of the supernatural and the lore and fun and stories of it. And I love horror movies, good, suspenseful uh, horror movies, not, uh, not torture porn, not gore porn. I am not interested in watching lots of blood splatter around. That's not my thing. I like uh, slow builds. I like scary, creepy movies with a lot of atmosphere, a lot of, you know, doom and gloom and, and what's happening exactly. Because I think I'm old school in terms of horror. I think it's what you don't see that's more terrifying than what you do see. Because the old adage that, you know, what you're going to imagine is going to be 10,000 times worse than anything I can show you. I can show you really gory, terrifying, horrible stuff, but it's nothing compared to what you're going to imagine, you know? So that's the kind of horror I like, and Halloween is the time and place for that, so I really kind of get into all of that. I think it's a lot of fun. 
Um, and yeah, that's kind of my thing. You'll see us on our Halloween episode. We will dress up a little bit. I think you guys will enjoy my... <laughs> uh, maybe you'll enjoy my Halloween costume this year. We'll see. Hey, everyone. I wanted to take this opportunity to talk to you about a service that I am endorsing and that I truly, truly believe in. And that service is called BetterHelp. H-E-L-P. BetterHelp. And they are av available through BetterHelp.com. And this is a service that connects you with a licensed professional counselor online so you can get help with depression, anxiety, stress, or just somebody to talk to in this very, basically, very troubled times that we're living in right now. It is not easy to get out there in the big wide world right now. It is not easy to get out and see therapists or counselors. It is not easy to find counselors or therapists who can help you. And this is what BetterHelp was designed to assist you with. The simplicity of this is you go to the site, you sign up. Actually, you use the link <laughs> that I have provided below, uh, which is betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton, and you get signed up. And this can be for as little as $40 a week, and they actually even have uh, financial aid available. You enter some information, fill out a questionnaire about yourself, and you get hooked up with a counselor that will help you out. And this can be via text, via voice, or via a video, okay? Any one of those. It's up to you and your comfort level. And if the therapist that you get connected with isn't doing the job that you feel you need, you can ask for and get a different counselor. So there are a lot of options for you in this, and it is really something that I think a lot of my viewers should be taking advantage of. I have talked often about the need for or the help that you can get through professional counseling. Sometimes you need somebody who really does know what they're doing and not just a friend or family member to listen. And that's why this service is something that I am happy to put out there for you guys. So again, use the link below, betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton. That is in the description to this video. And I hope that you um, can get the help that you might need from this service. Let me know how it goes. Nick C. In Scientology, staffers and Sea Org members get paid a pittance, yet some of them, for example, salespeople selling high-level services or the management types, see large amounts of money floating right past them. Have you ever experienced or witnessed any resentment over this? As in, the church isn't broke, so why am I? If not, why not? Are people simply conditioned to believe that all the money is going towards saving the planet, or is it something else? Oh, Nick. Oh, the jar you have opened here. <laughs> the Pandora's box of attitudes and resentments that simmer right below the surface in Scientology with the Sea Organ and, and the staff. Um, this is a great question because nobody's really ever asked me about this before, but it drives a lot of Scientology behavior. Back in the 70s, in fact, was the first time I ever caught wind of some kind of resentment and jealousy towards very successful Scientologists by the Sea Org and other staff, Class 5 Org staff, who resented the hell out of the missions. This is the first place I saw where this sort of thing was manifest. And the missions were very successful in the, in the 1970s. I'm talking about the California missions, uh, especially those uh, from up from the San Francisco Bay Area, Davis area, all the way down to uh, San Diego, Orange County, and 
the Los Angeles area, which is where I grew up. And I was I, I was a little rug rat running around in those very successful missions. I was there. And they were busy. There were a lot of people there. I don't have tons of memories, but I got some. And um, everybody dressed well. The place looked good. It was, you know, it wasn't just a bunch of the missions were not ratty furniture, folding tables with cracks in them and folding chairs. They, the missions made some money and they invested it right back into what they were doing. And the people who ran those missions, the very, there's a few people, these, these very top flight mission holders really had a sense, a business sense for what Scientology's potential was, and they were profiting on it, and they were profiting handsomely. And they were also flowing 10% to the church every week. So Hubbard was getting a taste of this, as was Scientology management. But it was only 10%. And um, and these places were really flourishing to the point where they didn't even want to send people to the local orgs because the orgs looked like shit. The L.A. org, the Los Angeles org back then was a hole in the wall, and it looked awful. It smelled bad. People didn't want to go, you know, from a nice mission, air-conditioned, carpeted, nice rooms, comfortable to get your auditing in, to do your training in, and then get shuffled off to this hole-in-the-wall crappy place where supposedly— According to the works of L. Ron Hubbard, this crap-ass place, L.A. Org, is supposed to be so much better than the missions that they came from, right? And they and it didn't reflect that at all. But people put up with it because Scientology Scientology. And at the end of the day, it is a destructive cult with an authoritarian dogma, and people have to comply. And they condition themselves to do so. But here's where I'm going with all this. That's the picture, and so the Sea Org is looking at these successful missions. The staff are looking at these successful missions, and these missions are not being run on a daily basis by telex, by phone, the same way the orgs and the Sea Org are running. In other words, to the degree that the management is hands-off and just lets these people get on with it, the more successful Scientology is. Well, that's exactly the opposite of what the picture is supposed to look like. And uh, and it pissed off everybody above the level of the missions because they were jealous of that success. And they thought we should be having that success. We should be having that money. We should be getting all those benefits. We should be getting all those bonuses. And they weren't getting any of it. And they hated those missions for it. And that was part of the setup as to why it was that the whole mission network got taken down and why you didn't see a whole bunch of staff and Sea Org members up in arms about it. They were like, yeah, about time those missions get their due, right? Now, not, not universally, of course. There was tons of protest. In fact, there was a very interesting letter published um, on Saturday's Tony on Tony Ortega's blog yesterday um, that laid out some ideas that some people had about what was going on back then. But anyway, within the organization, a lot of resentment. Um, and from that point forward, that kind of attitude never really went to the missions, but it would manifest, in my experience with Scientology, especially as a, as a staff and then Sea Org member, we really, I was in Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara is a pretty affluent area, and there were some very rich Scientologists there, as well as middle-class Scientologists and a few on the lower end of the scale, uh, who usually ended up joining staff or were sort of transient in and out. 
So the successful people, the guys who lived out in Hope Ranch, this was the Duggins, this was Reed Slatkin and his family, these types, big money people. We resented them, but we also relied on them, right? We needed them because they were paying our mortgage payments. They were paying our rent payments, and, the, and we were in a building that was way too expensive for us. So we kind of had a little bit of a love-hate relationship with these guys, right? Um, especially over time as you start, you know, really resenting the experience as a staff member of not having any money you know, living in a hole-in-the-wall apartment, um, barely making ends meet, you know, so did, you know, doing all this work to save mankind. And here's these people who seem to have cush jobs doing not a whole lot and making bank, right? And you're like, how is this, how is this supposed to work? This is just unfair. And, you know, at, at that point in my life, it was sort of shake my fist at the fates. I didn't know who else to blame. I mean, you know, how... How could I blame them for it? But I, you know, I kind of did, kind of had some resentment towards that. And then as a Sea Org member, it was no holds barred. Behind closed doors, all these affluent Scientologists, these people who've got money, fuck them. They need to give all of it to us. We are owed that money. And not individually, but the Sea Org, the cause. The Sea Org is about fanaticism, and I, haven't, I don't know that I've really used that word enough in connection with what that group is about. You have people, myself included when I was part of it, who are in a headspace where Scientology can really, as a movement, as a cause, and really as a structure, as an organization, it really can't do any wrong. It is the most important thing in the world. There isn't anything else going on that means more than what we're doing. So all of you Scientologists out there who've got all that money that are out there leading these cush lives, watching your TV, going bowling, going to the horse races, those are, those are two examples from a Hubbard policy letter. But Hubbard actually talked about this. He called it dilettantism. He said these people who are part-time in Scientology, who only engage in it uh, like as though it's a women's sewing circle, you know, ask them what they do on their nights off, bowling, horse racing, like this is what Hubbard said, right? So we would use this as justification to resent these people and put more pressure on them because clearly we're working our guts out 24-7. The least they can do is give us all their money. And when they wouldn't or they would hold off or hold out or pretend they didn't have money, we would just... Urgh. You scum-sucking lowlife, right? Here we are working our guts out. All you got to do is pay us, you know? I mean, it's the least you can do, <laughs> you know? This was the attitude that we had, and we would talk about this openly, uh, again, behind closed doors. When you're dealing with the public as a salesperson, which I did for a while as a reg, or as any other kind of, um, you know, direct contact point with the public, you are all smiles, very manners, very etiquette, very yes, yes, we love you, you're wonderful, we very, very much need you. And, and here's the crazy thing is as a fanatic, both of those things could be in your head at the exact same moment and you can reconcile them despite the fact that these two attitudes of love and hate towards this public seem mutually exclusive, but they weren't. They actually kind of formed this, this sort of meshy view of the public as people who weren't good enough or willing to be responsible enough to be on staff or join the Sea Org, 
But their contribution, therefore, was going to be money, and they were going to pay, and we were going to make them pay. And we did not have any qualms about taking their money because we were the ones who were actually doing the work. And all they had to do was shell out a few bucks. So in our eyes, they pretty much owed us. And that was, that was kind of how that worked, uh, it, you know, at least for me and, and people around me. Because I wasn't alone in this. This isn't just my own private thoughts. I, we talked about this stuff. Um, okay, so yeah. So are people simply conditioned to believe that all the money is going towards saving the planet? Yes, we were. When it came to money flowing past us, eventually this resentment over years and years of time in, in the Sea Org just sort of solidified into this sort of mad attitude I had. And I kind of, I sort of turned that resentment into a kind of, I don't know the word for it. I'm searching for the word right now. I, I, maybe I should have thought of this first, but um, it was sort of this attitude of, I don't care. Like, okay, it doesn't matter. I don't, yeah, you know, I just sort of reversed it. I sort of tried to flip the script on the, on the significance or importance of money in my head. And I'm sure there's some term for this in terms of psychological uh, mechanisms, but that's the best way I know how to describe it. To the point, and you're going to laugh at this because I sure do, I cannot believe how ridiculous I was. But as a Sea Org member, I would openly sit down with public from time to time and tell them, you know, money, I convinced myself that money was easy to get because look at all these people who are getting it and we're taking it from them, right? So I convinced myself that it was easy to get. And I would tell people, public, Scientologists, when I was doing ethics handlings with them or I was, you know, having to somehow discipline them, I would say to them when they would talk about their money problems, I'd say, man, if I, you know, it's a matter of ability. You got to do Scientology so you're more able. So you're able to open up your flows. You're able to do more work in less units of time. You're able to be more effective with the time that you invest. And I truly believed as a Sea Org member at this point, and this was deep into my Sea Org experience. This was after a, a lot of stuff. This was even after the RPF. I still maintain these attitudes. And I would, um, I would tell the public straight up in a one-on-one, -on -one, man, if I was you, if I was out in the real world, uh, not, I wouldn't call it the real world. I'd call it the WOG world, right? I said, if I was out in the WOG world like you, I'd be making bank. I'd be making so much money. It'd be easy. You know, the fact that you're having trouble just tells me that you're just not being effective in your actions and you need to deal with that. So let's go and start applying some Scientology. And then I'd start raking them over the coals, you know, that way. This wasn't all the time. I didn't deal with everybody this way. But if I felt that the person was holding out or being silly or stupid or something, and I thought that a lot as a Scientologist, as a Sea Org member, then, um, then I would give them the what for. And I would say stuff like that. And I look back on that now, and I just can't believe how ridiculous that is. That I was in a fantasy world, total fantasy world. Um, but I really thought that that was true. Right. And of course, now that I'm out in the real world, I know that that is, that I was completely out of touch with reality. So, um, so anyway, that's, uh, there's a lot of thoughts there about that, about that question, Nick, but that was a good one. I thought there was a lot to talk about there. And I hope that gives a, a sort of picture of the culture of Scientology and the Sea Org and how we sort of thought about money and public and stuff. 
and how that resentment actually had uh, from a from a sort of Scientology cultural point of view, right? Sort of if you look at the caste system and how it works, how that had long-term consequences. Taking out the mission network basically destroyed Scientology. It's just been taking a long time for it to die ever since then. That was really the apex. That was the zenith of Scientology was that time. And it's been on a steady downward trend since. So there you go. TJ Feeney. Hi, Chris. I've recently noticed a bunch of booklets in my local news agents. There are paperback yellow booklets on how to wash your hands and other basic hygiene tips. Only on the back cover does it say that these have been produced by Scientology. My question is, why do this? It won't make them any money. In fact, surely the opposite. Also, what suppressive act could they believe anyone is committed in order for us all to, quote-unquote, pull in the ongoing pandemic? Okay, TJ, thank you. And um, so the yellow booklets are really just a PR move. They're an effort to try to detoxify Scientology's public image. They're desperate to find anything they can do that will help uh, reduce the toxicity of their name. And if they can offer common sense advice via these yellow booklets on how to take care of yourself during a pandemic, then they think, and not, you know, uh, not completely in an, it, it not, it, it's not irrational to think that people would then think favorably of them. However, what they don't get is that they have completely ignored and failed to address all of the charges that have been brought against them by Leah, by Mike, by me, by Tony, Aaron, etc. All of us exes have brought very serious accusations of human rights abuses and uh, criminal actions, you know, publicly. We've said this is what Scientology is about, and they never talk about any of those things they just say we're a bunch of liars. And because that is so ineffective and not what people need to hear in order to uh, think favorably of Scientology, their efforts at trying to create goodwill with the public bomb miserably. Um, and that's and that's because they don't understand people or how public relations actually works. They only understand it through the lens of L. Ron Hubbard, and his lens was distorted, to say the least. As far as uh, what kind of suppressive acts could they believe anyone's committed to pull in the, uh, the pandemic, for anyone who doesn't understand that, Scientology has this concept of pulling in. Uh, you pull in on you, literally energy flows. You pull in on you bad things when you do bad things. It's sort of this reverse mirror karma sort of concept, except Hubbard explains it more physically in terms of energy flows uh, from the spiritual entity, the Thetan. And, uh, and he explains this stuff in a very convoluted way. But this idea of pulling in something basically means you did something that deserves a bad karma or bad things coming back at you. And so the question here is, what would you, you know, what would you have to do in order to pull in a pandemic? Uh, live on Earth, basically. You know, Scientologists contemplate the idea of living on Earth as hell. This is a prison planet. This is bad. You don't want to be here. You don't want to have any part of this. This is a trap. You're stuck here. Nothing about your life, as a, from the viewpoint of a Scientologist, nothing about your life is free. You don't have free will. You're not, you don't have self-determinism. You are other-determined. And this is how they talk. This is the language they use. So they want to get up the bridge and they want to do Scientology to regain their self-determinism and regain their freedom of mind and, and free will. 
And um, and so they believe, Scientologists believe pretty universally that all of us are so messed up, we're so bad off, that we have committed millions and millions of overt acts of, of sins, in other words. And so we are all deserving of this world that we are stuck in, and we need to um, get into Scientology and and you know, sort of accept L. Ron Hubbard into our hearts <laughs> in order to start turning this around. So uh, anyway, there you go. Hope that, uh, hope you like that answer. Cyprian Ivanov, does Scientology distinguish between short-term and long-term measurements? Do they view crunch time or deferative maintenance as impacting both short-term and long-term objectives? Or do they rely on the idea of Thetan powers reshaping reality as sufficient to ignore the longer-term effects observed in outside society. Oh, Cyprian. <laughs> um, okay, do, 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 how does Scientology distinguish between short- and long-term effects? Okay. Basically, as in the C, or the Sea Org is the group of Scientology that deals with the planning, the long-term planning that exists in Scientology, and, and, uh, and the Sea Org is really bad at it. Because the management direction they receive is all very short-term. It's all about—remember, I'm constantly going on about emergencies and how emergencies are created. There is never a dull moment in the Sea Org. There's never a dull moment in management. You don't have that. You're not supposed to have that. You are supposed to be busy all the time. Go, go, go. Taka, taka, taka. So uh, there's not a lot of time in that kind of culture and environment for long-term planning. So the people, the way the management structure works is they're told, the management worker bees at the continental level or at the staff level are told, you guys don't have to worry about long-term planning. That's what the guys at the top are supposed to be doing. Executive Director International and his staff are supposed to be putting together long-term strategic programs that envision where Scientology is going and the steps necessary to get it there. That's what that structure is all about. But Miscavige pulled the rug out from under it decades ago. And so none of that long-term planning gets done. So you have this push-pull of Miscavige making everybody wrong for not doing their jobs or not doing long-term planning, medium-term planning, and short-term planning. But the way he runs the show is nothing but short, 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 short. Now, 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 now. Quotas, quotas, quotas. Demand, demand, demand. Let's go, right? That's how he runs it, and that's how he likes it run. So the management people at the levels below the international strategic level don't take it upon themselves to try to do that job because they don't have the time or the scope of vision to know where Scientology is at and where it's going. The statistics of Scientology are compartmentalized. So at international management, you have the big picture of all the statistics, but at the continental level, you don't get access to those statistics. And at the public level, you definitely don't get access to those to any of those stats. You don't even get access to the continental level statistics like I had when I was in management for all those years. So uh, you only get drips and drabs, right? Stuff that they show you at the events. And you notice that for decades now, there haven't been numbers on the graphs they show. They just show these crazy, you know, infographics and and 
uh, lines going up, 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 but they never tell you how much, how many, what's actually going on here. They don't really communicate any of that for obvious reasons. So, um, so nobody's really got the big picture except the people at the very top. And like I said, Miscavige has pulled the rug out from under all of those people decades ago. So, um, so bottom line is the, the supreme test of a Thetan, according to L. Ron Hubbard, is his ability to make things go right. And at the end of the day, if you are faced with bad planning, lack of planning, poor planning, uh, inappropriate planning, whatever problems you are having with planning, your job is to make it go right anyway, despite any bad planning, despite any lack of prediction, despite new things happening. It doesn't matter. You figure it out. You make it go right. That's your job as a Sea Org member. And um, and so that's kind of the attitude. So it's always crunch time, and you just got to figure it out. And that's how it works. Tina Sofer, one, do they restrict photos slash videos from being taken in certain buildings or anywhere else? In other words, if photos are allowed to be taken and a Scientologist quits the organization, is there a contract stating those photos cannot be shared with the public? Two, are Scientologists allowed to drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes slash cigars? I'm sure it sounds like a stupid question, but I have read that they do not believe in mind-altering drugs. Coffee and alcohol are mind-altering, so I'm wondering if the pick and choose to fit their needs. I can't find these answers anywhere. Okay, Tina, I'm giving you a twofer because these are pretty easy answers. Um, the first one is no, they don't restrict... Well, they do restrict uh, pictures for non-Scientologists. They won't let you go into an org with a camera and start taking a bunch of pictures. They actually have notices on their buildings that specifically state you are not allowed to do that. Scientologists, once you're in and you're accepted and you're part of the group, then it's fine. Nobody's going to have a big issue on it. And no, there's no contract saying that you have to give all those pictures back. They don't do, do, uh, engage in that granular level of control over their public. However, as a Sea Org member, if you leave the Sea Org, they're going to go through your stuff, just like they did mine, and they're going to go through all of it. And if you're taking pictures out and they don't want you to be taking those pictures out, then they will take them away from you, and that's the end of that story. Uh, okay, so it's pretty arbitrary, really. And then as far as the second question, I actually have addressed this uh, on my show in the past, a couple times, uh, yes, Scientologists can drink. Yes, they can smoke. Yes, they can do mind-altering drugs like that. No, they can't do anything higher than that. No pot, no LSD, no PCP, Angel does none of that, right? None of the illegal stuff. Uh, Marijuana is legal now in many, many states, but it's still off-limits for Scientologists because of the mind-altering effects that they believe it has. They have fantasies about what drugs do to you mentally and spiritually, and um, they believe those fantasies, so that's why they don't do those things. But Hubbard himself drank and smoked, and so every Scientologist has the right to do that because Hubbard never put any sort of limits or um, prohibitions on either of those activities. And in fact, he lectured in the 1960s about the benefits of smoking and how it was actually something very good for you. All right, so there you go, Tina. Okay, guys, so that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and watching. I want to encourage anybody who enjoys my show and channel to join me on Patreon and uh, help us out. 
because we could use it. Um, I've actually been losing patrons um, in some number because of the economy, I believe. I don't think it's because of my bad content or because people hate me. I haven't seen any kind of indications of that. I just know we're having a rough time right now, and that is all of us. So just putting it out there and trying to be real with you guys that um, keeping this show going and keeping this channel going is not something that I do uh, in my spare time. This is my job. This is what I really do, and I want to do a good job at it, and I want to give you guys what you want um, without, of course, being a one-trick pony and only talking about Scientology I see comments about that from time to time and how I, you know, have gone off from my original videos and, and I now talk about random things and my Q&As and stuff. And, I, you know, I don't know what to say about that. I, my mind is expanded beyond the world of Scientology and I talk about a lot of important stuff on this channel and it's all still focused on that topic, though. And that's what really kind of boggles me about people who complain about my content is it's so focused on Scientology and coercive control and, and cults that I, I just I, I really kind of don't get it. Um, but if you want to help me understand that in the comments, I'd be more than happy to read what you have to say. Even if I don't agree with it, I'll still be happy to listen to what you have to say. Okay, guys. So that's me opening up a little bit about that. Um I hope that I will see you guys next week at the Critical Conversation Show and that you'll join me for my podcast and Q&A. All right, guys, have a great time this week, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.